as you're being seated, as you're at home with us, I'd encourage you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is where we're going to start. And also, if you want to put a a marker in Matthew 11, we're also going to end up there this morning as well. So uh, this morning, I want to kind of take us, uh, kind of pick us up from our current situation and uh, kind of allow us to step outside of ourselves for a little bit so that we can engage in a process of self-evaluation. Um, I, I, I want us to think, as you consider yourself, I want you to think about the things that trigger some of your kind of most intense emotional responses to situations. Think about the, 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 um, the events that happen that trigger your intense emotional responses. As you think about that, I'll kind of share my experience for you because I could talk generally about uh, a bunch of different kind of triggers, but then uh, that would be me expressing judgment on other things and other people that uh, I, I might want to do. So I'll, what I'll do is I'll kind of place myself out here so we can all express judgment on me and uh, figure out uh, how my emotional triggers work. So uh, in my experience, the emotion, the underlying emotion exists over something that is like some issue that is actually like really big, uh, something that is, you know, really challenging. It's there, right? But it stays kind of latent under the surface, right? It hides underneath, uh, you know, the ability to do tasks and kind of just go about your business. But then what that happens is that triggers come and the triggers can sometimes be like the stupidest, silliest little things, Right? Uh, or, you know, some of them are, some triggers are legitimate, but, but at the end of the day, like, they're still quite small. The triggers in and of themselves do not encapsulate the, the fullness of the emotion and the causes of the emotion. It just so happens that the trigger is the thing that opens your eyes up to the emotion. So uh, let's talk about me. Um, imagine, like, I get into situations where, okay, I have a day full of tasks, I have a bunch of stuff that I have to get done. Uh, I, I know that I'm not going to have enough time to get done all the things that I have to get done. And so what is kind of laying under the surface of all of that, the underlying emotion is I have kind of this latent anxiety uh, building up underneath, right? And then I can't find my keys, right? Like, and you probably have had this experience before. I can't find my keys. And this is not just like a normal, I can't find my keys. I am freaking out because I have things that I have to do. And so then all of a sudden, latent anxiety kind of erupts into stress and anger. And then, uh, so like try to have a conversation with me when I can't find my keys, when I have a day full of tasks and you might find that I'm not a very friendly person to interact with when you encounter me, right? Uh, So I like kind of personally wonder like how many years have I lost off of my life because I don't know where my keys are. Just because the amount of stress that I have like built up in my body from that. Um, okay, so, so another example. Uh, when I was 16 years old, I lost my grandmother. She passed away. And uh, so, you know, kind of underlying the surface of missing my grandmother, losing her is kind of this latent grief that uh, is resident inside of me. And it just so happened that my grandmother had a sister who looked exactly like her. 
like just like to a T. You look at my grandmother's sister and you're like, oh, that's, that's my grandma. So every time I would see my great aunt at a family event, I would like recognize the face and then I'd be like, okay, I have to go over here so I can cry for a few minutes, right? Because she has reminded me of my grandmother, right? That like seeing her face was the trigger. Now, like seeing my great aunt's face at the end of the day, like could be an inconsequential thing, but it just so happened for me that that was the trigger. And you might feel bad for me and go, oh, that's so sweet. Like you, you feel bad that you lost your grandmother. Don't feel bad for me though. Feel bad for my great aunt who every time I see her face, I have to go cry, right? Like this is, this is not a good thing. Um, so then finally, when I moved to seminary, uh, this is the first time in my life that I was really kind of fully on my own. Um, when I went to college, I was just a few minutes away from where my parents were, from where my uh, friendships and relationships were. But when I moved up to seminary, it was the first time like I had no relational networks where I was living. And so uh, that kind of led to this latent loneliness uh, underneath. And then I, I became a part of a friend group, but that friend group existed before me and did things together before me. And so occasionally I would do things with them, but then occasionally they would go do things on their own. And when I would find out that they would go and do things on their own, like it took this kind of latent loneliness and turned it into a bunch of insecurity about why am I being excluded? Why am I not being included? Now, at the end of the day, those people were not trying to exclude me. The reality is, is there are relationships that existed before I came into the picture, right? But these things kind of trigger inside of us and make us move from latent emotion to kind of outward uh, expressions that are a little more intense than maybe we expect. So, uh, so let's be honest then. These triggers, these latent emotions, like all of these things exist. Things can, like the smallest things have the ability to set us off because like we live in a world in which it is challenging to do life in. Right? Living in this world, trying to do life in this world comes with challenges. And so we encounter things like latent despair and sadness and grief, and depression, and anger, and lament, and all of that, like, it's coming from maybe a sense of loss, or a sense of missed expectations, or even just, like, a sense of heavy burdens of responsibility, right? And so, so we get this sense that inside of us that something is not right with the way things are, and so our emotions get stirred up towards this, and there's kind of a core reason why we get stirred up. That's because creation has been broken by sin, Right? Like creation is disrupted. There's something that is not right about the world that we live in and what's happening in those emotional responses is that our bodies and our minds are actually responding to the reality that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. So like if it's loss, like the fleeting nature of life is a result of sin. Right? If it's missed expectations, you know what? Like if it could be that your expectations are in the wrong place. And that just so happens to be a result of sin inside of you, right? But then it could be that this world does not match up to what is supposed to be. And that's a recognition that like there's something broken about this world, right? If it's a heavy burden of responsibility, like our attitude towards work is broken because of sin. And the heavy burden of work has come towards us because of sin. Both of these things are true. 
So, so why talk about any of this? Why talk about a world that has been broken because of sin and kind of our emotional responses to it? Because in John the Baptist's story, we actually watch him struggle in a way that many characters throughout biblical history have struggled. Right? In his story, um, we see him struggle and we kind of see him deal with these outward and latent emotions And then in the middle of all of that, we see the thread of hope and encouragement that the people of God throughout history have held on to time and time again in the midst of all of this brokenness. And that is this. Sin and brokenness will one day be undone. Right? Like all of the people of God throughout history have held on to this key truth, this this promise from God that one day God is going to do something, accomplish something in the world that will undo once and for all sin and brokenness. And this is a promise that John the Baptist held on to. So we are in the, the second of a two-week series on John the Baptist. So last week we learned that Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest man who ever lived. Right? Like among those born uh, among women, there has been no one greater than he. That's what Jesus said. And why did he say that? Well, central to his character and his life and his message was the impulse to do everything he possibly could to make much of Jesus. Like prophets before him, actually they talked about a Messiah, but they couldn't see that Messiah. John the Baptist talked about the same Messiah, but he saw the Messiah with his own eyes. He was able to actually point to him and say, there he is. Right, so he invested everything in pointing people to Christ. And that had implications for John's life. It meant that John was not the most important person in his life. It meant that John would face challenges that he would not have otherwise faced. And then ultimately, like, it meant that his story was about somebody else besides himself. Right, so this week, we're going to look at kind of the implications of that reality for John, right? The challenges that actually have come along with John making his life about Jesus and not about himself and then discover how God handles those implications. So just a second, we need to kind of do a little bit of review. Uh, the two pieces of John's message. Uh, there, there are kind of two things that John was all about in the things that he preached to other people. The first thing is this. He preached repent for the kingdom is at hand, right? That, like, that is the core of the message. That is the thing that he said again and again and again. And so just uh, substitute the term rule of God for the kingdom. John is saying repent, for the rule of God is at hand. God is like finally coming to rule, to reign. So what does this mean? Well, for John, it meant that he was going to call uh, Israelites, Jewish people, to confess their sins, He was going to call them to be baptized, which if you remember, uh, baptism is not a thing that happens for Jewish people. It's a thing that washes those unclean Gentiles. But John was baptizing Jewish people to say we're all unclean. We all have something that needs to be cleansed in us. And so recognize this need to be cleansed so that when the rule of God comes, you're ready. You can see it. You can acknowledge the one who has come. Right, so, so repent for the kingdom is at hand. And then the second piece of his message is this. The king is coming after me, and he's most important. 
right? So after me comes one who is greater, and I'm actually like, I can't even loose the strap on his sandal. I'm not even worthy to do that very thing. This is how important this guy is. He's greater than I am. Uh, He says things like, I baptize with water, right? That's very, very simple. But you know what he's going to do? He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Right? He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this, this is how much John believed this message. In John 1, 35 through 37, we kind of get a uh, reflection, a story about what happened as John talked about Jesus. And verse 35, it says, The next day, so John had been preaching uh, several days, and the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now these two disciples that he was talking to, I mean, these these guys have dedicated their whole life to following John's message, to, to listening to what John had to say. But the moment that John said, Behold, the Lamb of God, verse 37 says that the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So John has been amassing influence and power and the ability to speak and have people swayed by his words and people have been coming and repenting and changing their lives. But the moment he says, behold the Lamb of God, instantly his influence over those two people, he hands it off to somebody else. And those two people follow after Jesus. So for John, like the arrival of the king meant that God... God was finally doing the thing that he had been promising all along. That God was going to defeat his enemies. God was going to set what what is wrong in this world right. The king would usher in the kingdom. He would set captives free. He would bring victory. Like sin and brokenness were going to be undone. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, John starts handing off his influence to Jesus. So then... uh, this gets us into John chapter 3. John three twenty two and 23. This is what it says. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anan near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. So what you have is you have kind of in uh, two like places that are visible to each other, you have two baptizing groups, two groups of people who are uh, being baptized. They're following after people who are calling them to repent and that kind of stuff. And so, uh, so then verse 25 goes on and says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, To whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. So uh, this dispute, they're having this dispute. I imagine it was something like this. Uh, You know what, Jews, uh, John is saying, you know what, Jews need this baptism. John's disciples are telling this Jew, he's asking what's going on. Uh, So John's disciples tell this Jew, you know what, we Jews need this baptism just like the Gentiles do. We need to repent. We need to be cleansed. And so they start imploring this Jew to be baptized. And I imagine this Jew says something like, if this baptism is so important for Jews... Why is there someone over there who's baptizing people? Right? 
Like, he's not your leader. You follow this guy. If this baptism is so important, then why is somebody else over there baptizing? Because, and they are good disciples, right? And he raises this issue, and they don't have an answer for him. So they're quite concerned, especially because, in their eyes, Jesus is just another disciple of John's, right? Like, John baptized Jesus. Why should then Jesus begin baptizing other people? Like, John is the one that they follow. So, uh, so they want to kind of preserve the influence of their leader, right? They're very interested in that. Their lives have been transformed by hearing John teach, right? They have become different kinds of people because of the words that John has spoken, and so they're very concerned. So John responds to their concern, and he says, Hey, like you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but have been sent before him. He's like, you know, I've already told you guys, this is not about me, right? I've been preparing you for somebody else besides myself. You guys have been listening, right? Like, I was never the point. I was always looking forward to the one who was coming after me. You know this, we've talked about it, right? So then he goes on. Verse 29, he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John's just like, hey guys, I was just the wingman, right? Like, I was just getting things ready, right? But now, the one I've been talking about is here. Like, the, the king has arrived. He's preaching. He's drawing people to himself. He's baptizing. And this is all very, very good. Right? He's getting them to see his perspective here. He says, my, like, my heart finds satisfaction in nothing else. My joy is full to see this. Like, the one who has come to undo the brokenness of Israel, of the whole world, he's here, and people are actually following him. Right, so from John's perspective, like this was a success. He had done the thing that he came to do. He's watching people follow Jesus. I got the people ready. They saw their king, and now they're going after him. And so finally in John 3.30, this is what he says. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Right, like he is convinced. Now that Jesus is here, people can follow after him. You know what, John, in his heart, he was full of hope. But I don't know, like, as he was kind of looking at the situation, like, I don't know if he understood the full implications of his words when he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. But, like, when those words left his mouth, I don't know if he anticipated what exactly would be next in his life. Because it's true that Jesus would increase. Right? Like, he would gain more and more influence. And John would decrease, and actually John decreasing would lead to more than just him losing his influence. Right? He would lose a lot more than that. So, uh, so like, let's just talk about John's life from this moment forward. Remember, like, late, kind of underneath everything is his clinging to this promise that one day sin and brokenness will be undone. So, uh, so what does John do next? Well, if you remember last week, so we looked at Mark chapter 6. And in Mark chapter 6, we kind of follow John as he went before King Herod, who is like this proxy king. Uh, he's not the real king of Israel, but he is a proxy king of Israel, and he goes before Herod. He went to the house of Herod, and uh, he called him to repent. 
Why? Because he took his brother's wife and there just happens to be a, a verse in the Old Testament that says, you shall not have your brother's wife. Right, so he goes and he goes to talk to Herod and he is tenacious because the promise that about Jesus is starting to come true, the promise about the Messiah and the things that God was going to do in the world. And so his joy is full and he gets, he, so he's like publicly talking now to Herod. And it's like, Herod, you have to repent. You have to be ready to see the king. And so what happens to John? Well, uh, Herod's wife, uh, Herodias, she doesn't love this. Uh, she doesn't love that John has made a public embarrassment of his or her family, right? Doesn't love that John has drawn attention to the family's deviance from the law. And so eventually, like Herod has John thrown in prison. For what it's worth, Herod actually kind of likes John. Like they, uh, Herod likes hearing what John has to say. He has him up to kind of listen to his words and hear him process the Old Testament, right? But, uh, but at the end of the day, Herod's wife doesn't like this, and so John gets thrown in prison. So John speaks words that are true, calls Herod to repentance, and Herod and Herod's family respond with sin and brokenness. And at this moment, everything that John has been working towards, everything that John has been doing, all of the kind of forward momentum stops. Right, because John gets thrown in prison. And he doesn't see Jesus do anything else. He doesn't witness one other thing that Jesus does. He just got people ready, and he saw people start going to Jesus, but then after, like, is nothing. Right, like, he, he didn't see anything but a prison cell, and then occasionally Herod's court, when Herod brought him up to have conversations. So John had success after success, after success, built influence, and then all of a sudden, like, he handed his ministry off to the Messiah. This thing is going really, really well, and then for him, everything stops. Like, imagine devoting your life to something, and then one day, the thing that you had devoted your life to, like, all of a sudden, you're just out of the loop on what happened with that. Like, imagine like working, like you're in a job, you're in a career or something like that. You have this kind of massive project that you're working on. Uh, Maybe like a really new innovation in your job or something like that. And then um, while you're working on this innovation, like this is the culmination of your career. Like you have went to school, you have uh, gained knowledge and understanding, you have worked with other people, you've risen through the ranks of your company to be able to work on this kind of culmination of your career. And then on launch day, they let you go. Oh, and by the way, it's like really classified, you can't know anything about what's happening. So they just let you go. And you don't hear like how the project ends up. You don't hear how your life's work actually like ends up coming to fruition, you just go home, right? Like that's the end. That's all you get. And that's kind of John's experience. He had devoted his life to this thing and all of a sudden nothing. So here's, here's what we know happened. Actually, from the time that John got arrested, the way Matthew tells the story is Matthew is like, John got arrested And from that time, Jesus went forth saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? Jesus 
took the message that John was preaching and began preaching it, right? And then he took the other piece of that message, which for John it was, after me is the king who is coming. For Jesus, it's I'm the king who is here to show you what God's rule looks like, right? So Jesus starts healing and reaching out to people and preaching and performing miracles. And John knows none of that. Like he's just stuck in a prison cell. All he knows now is that he is suffering because sin and brokenness existed in the family of this proxy king. So, so how do you think like John feels now? Like what do you think is latent underneath the surface? A sense of loss? Unmet expectations? Confusion maybe? Like I thought this was supposed to be happening like this, but it's happening like this. Despair? Grief? Like, because from the height of his success, he goes straight to prison. And there's probably a combination of a lot of things that he's feeling. And it's all resulting from this reality of what it means to live in a world that is broken by sin. And remember John's expectations. Like, if Jesus is the one who has come to undo brokenness and sin, like, this should not be the way that things are happening right now. So uh, then we're going to turn to Matthew 11. I invite you to turn to Matthew 11 with me. Matthew 11, verse 2, it says this. It says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. So apparently some things are happening, and whether it's coming from uh, the guards in the prison or whether it's coming from disciples who are allowed to, to visit John, he's hearing kind of secondhand some things that have been happening. Uh, he's hearing things kind of filtered through multiple sources, right? Uh, so, so it's not verifiable, the things that he's hearing. But he, so the, the, the things that are verifiable is that he is in prison and Herod is still the king who is in charge and things are still broken. And at this point, Jesus hasn't done anything of like world-changing effect, right? So, so he wants this opportunity for direct communication with Jesus, so he, instead of getting things like from a secondhand source, he sends disciples directly to Jesus. So verse 3 says this. Those disciples said to Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Right, so John is discouraged by this kind of sudden halt to his ministry. He's despairing. He is longing for the brokenness to be undone. So what does he ask? He asks, did I waste my time? Like, did I pour my life into something that was meaningless? Right? Was my energy that I spent all for nothing? Right? Like, listen, I know that there is a Messiah coming because God said it would happen and God's word always proves true. But like, did I just imagine the, the call that God placed on my life? Like, did, did our mothers really share those stories about the angels and the messengers who came to share this message about good news? And some part that we played in it? Like, was that really true? Or did I just waste my life? Like, John's mix of confusion and despair, it has, it has been triggered to an intense degree. Not for what it's worth, unlike Elijah, just so, so we can, like, track the kind of comparison here. Uh, you know, we watch what happens to John, and it's actually very similar to what happens to Elijah. Because uh, when Elijah does kind of his miracle of miracles and is able to like put to shame all the prophets of the false god, uh, Elijah is like this really powerful thing happens. 
And then Elijah walks away from that moment and he's like, is there even a righteous person left in Israel? Like, is there anybody good left in this nation? Like, what am I even doing? Is this energy that I, I have poured out really worth it? And so, so we watch something that the same sort of thing happened to John after the height of his ministry. He goes into this place of despair. So watch how Jesus responds to him. Matthew 11, verse 4, it says, And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. Verse 5. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is referencing specific Old Testament prophecies uh, from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. And what did these prophecies talk about? These prophecies talked about the things that would accompany the arrival of the Messiah. The things that would accompany God setting things right in the world. God's undoing of sin in the world. And for what it's worth, John would have known these prophecies really, really well. Like these, these promises to him, these were his lifeblood. These are the things that drove him, that kept him going in his ministry, that made him convinced that he needs to stick around and keep pointing people to the Messiah. So John says, hey, Jesus, I don't see it happening. Like the world is still broken. And Jesus says, John, the promises about the Messiah, they are happening. Like the promised work of God is taking place. The power of sin is being undone. And God's word is holding true in me. So like notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say, Hey, John, it's okay. You're going to get out of prison. He doesn't say that at all. Uh, hey, John, you know what? Don't worry. Your circumstances will get easier. There's a brighter day on the other side of this. He doesn't say any of that. He also doesn't say, like, John, what are you thinking? What is the deal with all of this questioning and despairing? Haven't you figured this out yet? He doesn't come down on him like that. He says, John, here's what's true. The promises of God are holding true in me. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised. John, the gospel is proclaimed to people who have been excluded from society for a long time. He says, John, brokenness and sin are being undone. The joy of the world is coming. It's happening right now. The same message that God gave to the prophets of old, the same message that God gave to you, the same message that you handed off to me, that hope that you have in me, all of that is happening, John. All of that is still true. So Jesus then, what he did, is he spoke to John the exact words that John needed to hear when he was tempted to despair. He said, John, I am the promise proven true. Like that is what he was convincing John of. And so at this moment, like, the next thing, 
the next thing that we hear about John is that he dies, right? Like that's all, all we get. That's like the next word that we get about him. We don't know how John responded to these words. We do know that they contained a reassurance for him, right? Like John, things are hard, but a life that is lived for me is not going to be wasted. John, like despair may linger close to you, but I will undo all the sin that has caused it. Right? Like your circumstances may not change from this situation, but I'm the one who raises the dead. Discouragement, it may come against you, it may challenge you, but you know what? Like I am in the process of bringing everlasting peace. So, uh, so this reassurance for John, it would be his anchor. Right? Like the thread of hope and encouragement for him. This would be like his gift. Up until the moment when the executioner takes him, takes him from his prison cell, removes his head, puts it on a platter, parades it in front of Herod's family. And then eventually the news of John's death would make it to Jesus. And do you know what would happen next? Jesus would perform his most massive miracle that he had performed up to that point. The very next thing to happen, the moment after Jesus hears the news about John's death, he goes and he tries to get away for a little bit. And what they find is that people will not leave Jesus alone. Like they want to come to him. They're looking to be healed. They want to hear him teach. They want to hear his words. And so Jesus tries to get alone, but it turns out he has to come out and minister to these people and start healing. And so he's, uh, he's uh, you know, teaching them and spending time with them. And, and then they, like, they've stuck with him all day. And like he finds out that they're not going home, right? And they need food. And these people have come to Jesus and so Jesus asks his disciples, like, what are we going to do? These people need food. And the disciples are like, well, we don't have anything. We just like five loaves and two fishes is all that there is. And so you know what Jesus does? He takes that and he multiplies it so that probably about 15,000 people can eat food by the shore. That like from this moment where John's death happens, Jesus' fame increases. Like he would teach thousands of people. Like he would perform this miracle. His fame would spread. His ministry would advance. The promise would continue, showing itself to be true in Jesus, up through his death and suffering for sin, and his burial in the tomb, and his raising from the dead, and his sending of the Holy Spirit to his people. And his people going forth into the world to proclaim the true message about Jesus. And the church spreading to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And his future second coming where he will one day come and actually undo the power of sin. Not just in the lives of individuals, but in the whole world. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Because uh, our despair is not John's despair, right? Right? Like the, the challenges that we encountered, like John encountered real persecution for this thing that he held on to. Like we, we're not at threat of that right now anyway. Right, our despair is not his despair, but here's the reality. Uh, John and us both, we still feel the weight of living in this world that is broken by sin. We still feel the aches of aging bodies. We still encounter circumstances where we have to give up influence 
We get in situations where we're unable to do the things that we were once able to do. We encounter grief and loss and despair and frustration and anger and kind of the litany of latent emotions and triggered emotions that come out of us. And all of it's the result of living in bodies of flesh that are warped by sin and the result of living in a world that is broken by sin. And here's the thing. God gives us no guarantee that any of our circumstances will change. Right, like this side of eternity, we get no promise that like, oh, you know, it'll be okay. God will just make things better. Right, we, we can pray for and seek those things. We can ask God for healing and God does heal. Right, but we cannot get a guarantee that our circumstances will change. But as followers of Jesus, the promise that we're given is that the king has drawn near to us. Right, and the message of the prophets of old, same message picked up and preached by John, the same message that he handed off to Jesus is the same message that we cling to today. Right, so I don't necessarily have a solution for anybody stuck in despair or grief or loss or whatever it might be. Like I cannot, in fact, tell you anything that you can do to make those things go away. But what I can tell you is that if you follow Jesus, that in the midst of your despair or in your grief or in your loss or whatever it might be, Jesus is still and always the promise proven true. Right? Like Jesus still rose from the dead. Jesus is still working out his purposes in the world. He's still the proof of God's never-ending love for you. He's still the commitment of God to keep his promises. Right? He is still the promise of a glorious inheritance with the saints. He's still the one who made us children of God. He's still sending out witnesses to the nations. Still the one who is sustaining the persecuted Christians who suffer in prison cells for their faith. His presence is still with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And he is still coming back to raise the dead and set up his kingdom. Right, So church, no matter our circumstances... Jesus is for us the promise proven true. So what? So what? Uh, number one, reminding yourself of what is true in Jesus prepares you for the challenges of decreasing. Right? So like Jesus instilled this basic expectation in his followers. Openly following me means denying yourself. Openly following me actually may mean for you a loss of influence. Openly following me means I get priority over what you do with your time or with your money. Openly following me, may, like it may mean that you get mocked or slandered. It may mean that you lose the approval of others. It may mean that you have to set aside your preferences. Right? And that's, like, that's not even taking into account the challenges that we just face by living in this world. Those are things like just Jesus related. You add to that the things that are just the reality of living in this world, death and loss and grief. And Jesus, praise the Lord, has given us something firm and reliable that we can look to and hold on to when the sand of our lives sifts. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribula tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
Right? Like, this is who I am. This is the promise that is true to, in me. This world is broken, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So I just encourage you, look to Scripture for those promises, all of the promises that prove true in Jesus. Uh, number two, if you despair, you're in good company. Right, like there is a tendency to think, and this is, you know, for what it's worth, I, I don't know if this is because we're American, or be, I, like, I, I don't know the explanation for the cultural reality that like, we think we just, like, it's wrong to not be happy all the time. Like, we feel convicted by the fact, like, if I'm not happy all the time, then I, like, I must really have something bad going on. Like, we think that despair is wrong. We feel convicted when we hear commands to be joyful and rejoice, right? Because in those moments, we sit with, like, really heavy realities. So, like, I want to encourage you to not listen to those that tell you, you just need to stop despairing. Number one, because you can't anyway. Like you have control. Like you have like the ability to flip it on and off like a switch. Right, but then second of all, like even Jesus had moments of despair. Right? Like in the garden, Jesus is despairing. Right? Elijah despaired after seeing God move in the most powerful way and then God shows up in the still small voice to talk to him. John despaired in prison. Jesus gives him words of promise. Jesus despaired in the garden but he knew that there was a joy set before him on the other side of the cross. Right, the commands toward joy are not to say, stop despairing. But joy and rejoicing is like drinking from the well of what is true in the midst of hard circumstances. Right, so you don't somehow escape your despair to get to joy and rejoicing. Joy and rejoicing that you have in what is true in Jesus is what you hold on to in the midst of your despair. Right, so, um, so listen to these words. These words come from uh, the, um, the hymn, uh, Grace, Grace, God's Grace. Sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite love. But grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Jesus knows our despair. He suffered such despair the night before they took him to the cross. So this is what Jesus does. Jesus reaches out to those who are in the midst of despair and loss, and he extends his grace. He extends the true promises that anchor the souls of saints and people of God throughout the ages. So with all of that being said, I'm going to pray, but then actually I'm going to have Nick come up. Nick's going to, I'll, I'll explain what he's going to do in just a second. And can you get a microphone from, you got one right there. All right, very good. So I'll pray. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I am incredibly just grateful at the fact that we could have these things called promises to cling to that you have proven true time and time again throughout history so that when we do encounter hard circumstances challenging circumstances 
That, it, that our hope is not in our circumstances changing, although that is a good, good thing. Lord, that our hope is actually in you and in the promises that you have proven to be true time and time again. And I thank you that we have even much more reliable promises than even John had. Like John saw the Messiah and he was able to point to the Messiah, but then we get the witness of everything that the Messiah did after John went to prison. Like we get the truths about his miracles and the, uh, the teachings that he shared with people and the amazing things that he accomplished and how he actually did raise up dead people. And not only that, how he went to the cross and he suffered for sins. And after three days, his body was raised. And if his body was raised, then our body shall be raised. If his body was raised, then the fact that he is coming again, it is, we can rely upon it. It is verifiable. Lord, so may these truths, these things, these realities anchor us in the midst of our temptations towards despair, in the midst of our tendency towards grief and loss and whatever might come to us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.